The teaching text for today comes from Jeremiah 29, 4-11. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans, for, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Dear Lord, I just thank you for this day and the freedom to come here and worship you openly in such an awesome place of community. I pray that as we hear today's message, that we would understand your word in a new light, and as we leave today, we could confidently walk in the paths that you've set before us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks. Y'all can be seated. I took the liberty of running down to get my original self-portrait, because <clears throat> I thought you all needed to see what kind of gifted artist I am. And I don't want to have false humility, but I'm pretty proud of this. Um, so I'm willing to sell this if anybody is feeling particularly motivated. It's honestly probably the best picture I've ever done. I don't know why I have a mustache in it. <laughs> I have never grown a mustache in my life. If I set it here for the whole sermon, will you be distracted? Okay, I, I, I probably will be. Uh, well, I'm so glad that you are here in the middle of the summer. I happen to know that this is week 26 of 2019, which means that we are at the exact midway point of the year of the Bible. So if you don't know, we're reading through the Bible all the way through this year. So we started in Genesis, Genesis chapter 1 on January 1st. Now we're uh, in the middle of Jeremiah. Next week we'll be in Lamentations, and uh, my friend Jimmy Doyle is going to come and share with us on biblical lament. Some of you will remember Jimmy on biblical lament out of the book of Lamentations, something that's really emotionally healthy is lamenting to God. There are lots of things to cry over. But right now we're in the middle of the year of the Bible, which is an amazing accomplishment that we've made it uh, this far. Uh, we're in Jeremiah. If you don't have uh, a Bible open already, you may want to turn to Jeremiah or to page 1124 to Jeremiah 29. One of the great storytelling paradigms for all of history is the story of exile, a story of, uh, you know, of being taken from the familiar and thrust into the unfamiliar, into the foreign land, into the strange place, a place not your own, a place where you have to begin to make the long journey home. This is what all stories of exile have in common, estrangement, fear, panic, but then there's also the opportunity for acceptance, being in the land that's, that's far from home and learning and having a kind of personal growth. Uh, that kind of growth can happen in exile to the people who are willing to learn the lessons of exile. This paradigm of storytelling is undergirds some of our favorite stories and TV shows and movies and books over the years. Uh, uh, who recognizes this one? Castaway. Yeah, Wilson not pictured. Uh, who knows this one? 
planes, trains, and automobiles. It, not, you wouldn't necessarily jump to thinking of that as an exile story, but uh, Steve Martin is exiled from home and doing everything he can uh, to get home, but he keeps being in strange places with unusual people. It's an exile story. Next one is uh, a lot of us were really into the TV show Lost, which, is, which was really fun. People who are uh, metaphorically lost in their personal lives and then they're, uh, they uh, crash on this plane, on this, this, this island that's really mysterious and have to decide how they're going to find their way home. Uh, Lord of the Rings, another one of those exile stories where the world as people knew it uh, is, is becoming estranged and different and, and dark. And so a group of friends have to go a journey far from home to a land not their own where there's a sense of being trapped and stuck and then make the long journey home. Another exile story is Finding Nemo. Nemo is taken to a land of exile and his father is estranged from the son. The father has to go on a journey apart from his son that he's really overprotective of. They reunite and find themselves and find each other and then find their way home. It's another exile story. And then you might not guess it, but Mean Girls, also an exile story. Uh, Lindsay Lohan's character from South Africa comes to the strange, bizarre land of suburban high school and has to learn the customs and the culture of a suburban high school. These are all, in one way or another, uh, exile stories. Stories of leaving the familiar by force or by choice and having to find one's way home, either literally or metaphorically. They're all exile stories. Inversions of exile stories are constantly retold, not because we, as, as the creatives in the world, lack imagination, but because of the emotional and spiritual sense of lostness that, that is imprinted on all of our hearts. We all have a sense of, of missing that home that should have been there for us. Uh, the author of Ecclesiastes says, God has written eternity on the hearts of men, and yet that eternity eludes us. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote the, the uh, Middle Earth saga, said, We all long for Eden. Our whole creation, our whole nature is soaked with a sense of exile. And taken from this perspective, thinking about uh, exile, you could make the case that the Bible is really one long story of exile told in three movements. You've got life in the garden, You've got life away from the garden, and then you've got coming home to the garden, which is what we see in Revelation 21 and 22, which will cover uh, the weeks, uh, the days leading up to Christmas this year. Life in the garden, life away from the garden, coming home to the garden. Each of us in our own life experiences have had some share in exile. We've had some sense of estrangement or being in an in unfamiliar territory. Maybe it happened for you when you were a kid or a teenager and your parents divorced, and you had a sense of like what the world was like, and your worldview was shattered because the thing that was supposed to be constant was no longer constant. You had a sense of exile within your own family. Maybe you experienced a sense of exile in moving to a new city or, or even coming to a new church. Maybe you had a great community in another town and you moved to this place and you're just feeling the pain of the unfamiliar all the time. You don't know the rules, you don't know the connections, you have a limited sense of community. Now, sometimes senses of exile happen at key transition points in a person's life. Maybe you had a built-in community in college 
uh, or in like the, 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 in high school and your early working years, you had that, t- that tight community and then you graduate uh, and you don't see any of these people again and you're in the strange and unfamiliar world. Maybe it happens for some of us at retirement. You have a sense of your identity, your community, where you fit, and then you stop working and you've lost your whole sense of self. You don't know where you fit. You don't know where you belong. You don't know where you can contribute. Or maybe it happens in the empty nest years when you're hardwired to be a parent and then the kids are not there and you're looking at your spouse like, I don't know who this person is and we don't know the rhythms of how to do life without the kids in the house. Uh, There's a sense of exile when we lose people we love to death or to estrangement in a relationship. There's a breach. Sometimes there's a sense of exile when we have a child and the life that we knew is changed and maybe parenthood is more difficult than you first imagined and there's a sense of estrangement or exile from the life that you you knew and you don't know how to find your way back to equilibrium or to find your way home. People all over the world experience way more profound senses of exile when there's war. You think of uh, Syria, which we've talked about a bit this year. There are 12-plus million Syrians who have been displaced either in their country or fled to other countries around the world because of the war in Syria and the presence of ISIS and Bashar al-Assad trying to slaughter his people. 12 million-plus people who have fled for safety. They're in exile. You think of the the Rohingya people who have fled their country from Myanmar and gone into places like Bangladesh because living in Myanmar is no longer safe for them. I think about many of the friends that Emily and I had when we were missionaries in Honduras and many people in Central and South America who fled north uh, to, to the United States in search of a better life because there was gang violence or limited opportunity and took great risk to come all the way north and to cross the border Imagine being any of these people, the Syrians or the Rohingya or Central and South Americans who have had a sense of exile. They want to be home, but for one reason or another, being home is no longer tenable and then find themselves in situations where uh, it's very, very terrifying. Eugene Peterson in his book on uh, Jeremiah described exile. He said, exile is traumatic and terrifying. Our sense of who we are is very much determined by the place we're in and the people we're with. When that changes violently and abruptly, who are we? The accustomed ways we have of finding our worth and sensing our significance vanish. The first wave of emotion recedes and leaves us feeling worthless, meaningless. We don't fit anywhere. No one expects us to do anything. No one needs us. We are extra baggage. We are unnecessary. Millions of people all around the world today, in fact, uh, the UN estimates that 68.5 million people in our world today are living in some form of exile. Exile is everywhere. And as, as the, the people of Israel were concluding four centuries of exile as slaves in Egypt, and as they were going on the, en route to their new homeland, the land that God had promised their forefathers, God gave them a particular command about how they should regard others in exile, other refugees, other foreigners. This is Leviticus 19. When a foreigner or someone in exile resides among you in your land, don't mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself because you were foreigners. You know what it's like to be in exile in Egypt. And then just says simply, I am the Lord your God. 
God has a heart for people in exile. God has something to say to people in exile, which in a sense is all of us. As we've been going through the Old Testament, we're now in the story of Jeremiah. And in the context of Jeremiah, God has been warning the people of Israel and Judah for for decades and in a sense centuries uh, about the risk of exile. So much had been made of like the land, the land, the land. God was promising this land to them. And embedded in, in their calling as a nation was this particular spot. The land was to house the temple, which was the very real presence of God among the people. Uh, the, the land was divided among the 12 tribes as they entered in conquest. The land was a place from which the blessings of God were to flow to all the nations of the earth. The land, the land, the land. And Jeremiah, who's called the weeping prophet because he's heartbroken over the news that he's delivering to the people of Israel and Judah, is like the last siren call. Repent, repent, repent. Because if you don't, the worst thing imaginable is going to happen. You're going to lose the land. And in the year 587, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came in and did what he did in other nations, which was to take the the political leaders, the artistic leaders, the the social influencers uh, of, of the nation of Judah, and to take them 700 miles marching through the desert back to Babylon. And the the strategy was twofold. One was to take the leadership of Judah and acculturate them into Babylonian society, effectively attempting to wipe out Jewish culture. The other thing was there was was a belief that if they take out the leadership of of Judah and Jerusalem and you're left with just the followers, this group of people is going to be way more susceptible to Babylonian rule. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes in as the instrument of God. He's, he, he wipes out uh, the people and takes them 700 miles across the desert. And evidently, Jeremiah was so unpopular as a prophet that they left him behind because no one had been paying attention. And Jeremiah, left behind in the city of Jerusalem, writes a letter to the leadership of Judah and Jerusalem living in Babylon and appeals to them on God's behalf, speaking this prophetic word. And in Jeremiah 29, we have record of this letter. We just, Alex just read it for us. Let's, let's uh, zero in on it together. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and daughters in marriage so that they will increase in number and not decrease. Also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Let's leave that up, and I want you to pay attention to a couple of the, just the phrases in there. This letter is addressed from God to the people, God says, that I carried into exile. You're looking to the Babylonians as these bullies, these conquerors who have come in, but God takes full responsibility for it. I'm the one who carried you into exile. I'm behind this. Judah, you are being disciplined. Next, he says, build houses and settle down. There's this inevitable point in every shipwreck story of all time where they have to make this decision between staying on the beach where they might be observed by a passing ship or going further into the island to make provisions. And God is saying to the people living in Babylon, don't expect a quick rescue. You're going like, to put down roots here. Build a house 
and settle down. Prepare for the long haul on this. Get cozy. Then he says, plant gardens and eat what they produce. In other words, get accustomed to the seasons of your new culture. Contribute to the economy. Work for the good of the city. You're entering into the life of the place. Get your hands dirty in the process. Take wives and have children. Further signs of continuity. You're going to be here for a long time. The exile isn't ending soon. And then finally, and perhaps most unusually, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city. If you go to ancient Near Eastern documents and read about what the culture of Babylon was like, while they were in many ways sophisticated, they were brutal. Seek the peace and the prosperity of your brutal, violent enemies, the ones who stripped you from your home and marched you 700 miles through the desert to this unfamiliar land where you've lost everything. Seek the peace of those people. This is now home. Peterson again. He says, Jeremiah's letter is a rebuke and a challenge. Quit sitting around feeling sorry for yourselves. The aim of the person of faith is not to be as comfortable as possible, but to live as deeply and thoroughly as possible. To deal with the reality of life, to discover truth, to create beauty, to act out love. You didn't do it while you were in Jerusalem. Why don't you try doing it here in Babylon. God is saying, you're going to be in this for a really long time. Many of us, uh, myself included, maybe you would put yourself in this category, feel a sense of, of grief or even acute pain or estrangement from just what it's like to be an American right now, from the lack of morality and virtue in post-truth America. Many people uh, are familiar with that term. Or really, increasingly, it's not just a post-truth country, it's a post-truth world. There's a fear of the lost influence of the church, the empowerment of anti-Christian forces, and maybe worse than any sense of opposition, there's just a, a growing apathy or blasé posture toward Christianity or toward the gospel. There's a sense that the church has been gutted of spiritual authority and power. And it feels more and more like, like we're losing, like the church is in exile in America. And across the spectrum of, of Christian voices, there are certainly those revivalists and optimists and word of faith folks who see a great awakening on the horizon. You know, they point to the divine election of, of particular political leaders or to judges, and they look for legislation to usher us back to the pathos of a past era, the good old days where we wish we could go back to. And they insist that this sense of post-truth America is just a hiccup. It's just a little uh, something, an obstacle in the way, and our revival is coming soon, soon, soon. And people in the day of Jeremiah were saying the same thing. There were prophets who were saying, this is, it's just a flesh wound. <laughs> we can get better quickly. This is just a little hiccup. This is how God is bringing our revival quickly. And speaking to these revivalists, these people who were missing the point that God was trying to make, God spoke through Jeremiah. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, Don't let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. Don't listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They're prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. 
And Jeremiah reminds the people who are living in exile, God is the one who carried you into exile. And he did it for a reason. What is that reason? Let him do his thing. Seventy years. Uh, Seventy years is how long they were to be into exile. This is what God clarified. So this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and I fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. I told you to settle down, to marry, to have kids, to plant, and this is how long it's going to take. 70 years. Um, how old are you going to be 70 years from now? I'll be, a, I'll be 104 years old 70 years from now. 70 years is a really long time. That's nearly two generations. And God is reflecting in this 70-year promise, this posture that is the antithesis of the quick fix. The centuries of idolatry are not going to be unlearned in just seconds of God confronting them. No, God is taking the long view. God is insisting on doing slow work of disciplining His people. And as it turns out, God does this work of discipline with the people that He loves, not the least, but the most. Look at Proverbs. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Do not resent His rebuke, because the Lord disciplines who? The ones that He loves. These are the words of Jesus in John chapter 15. My Father, says Jesus, cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, he cuts back, he cuts down. Why? So that it will be even more fruitful. And then the author of Hebrews says, Our parents disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Who does God discipline? The ones that He loves, the ones that bear fruit. He disciplines His children. And for what end? So that they'll bear more fruit, so that we may share in His holiness for our good. He disciplines us so that we can produce a harvest of righteousness and peace. It turns out that what God is doing for Judah and Jerusalem is not because he hates their guts. It's not vengeance. He's doing this as a father, as a parent disciplines their child for their good. So we see the exile wasn't a sign of God's abandonment. It wasn't a sign of the removal of God's hand. Exile was proof of God's favor. And exile was actually the presence, the outstretching of God's hand toward his people to discipline his idolatrous people in the long view so that it would go well for them and things would be for their flourishing. It proved to be, from the big perspective, an act of mercy. And then Jeremiah tees up what is probably the most quoted out of context verse in the entire Bible. <laughs> Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future, which is a beautiful verse. It's a favorite verse for 17 and 18-year-olds who are feeling indecisive about picking their college. It's a really comfortable, comforting verse for angsty adults who are trying to make career decisions. And while this is comforting, it's not comforting in a generic way. 
It's a, it's a message of hope, but not a generic carte blanche kind of message. It's a specific reminder of the faithfulness of God to those people who are enduring the discipline of God. And that this des- discipline, which right now might feel like failure or rejection, fits into a bigger picture story. That the one who carried you into exile can carry you out of it, but there's something in exile that he wants you to take with you. And so he says, settle down, learn the lesson, sit at my feet as as the teacher. There's something that happens in periods of exile, in estrangement. When we're estranged from, oh my gosh, I thought I was a better person than this. We think like we look at ourselves as if from the outside and we see what a failure we've become. With a sense of estrangement from other people when people make choices that are harmful to us or a sense of estrangement from our world or circumstances that may leave you feeling disoriented and lost. There's a unique work of God that happens in exile. And God says, don't rush the process. Trust the process and you can trust the process because I know the plans that I have for you. The plans that I have for you are for your good, for your flourishing. So trust me in the process. Richard Rohr has this great quote. He says, once we reach the age of 30, success has nothing to teach us. Success is fun and rewarding, but we don't learn anything from it. Nothing new. It's not a bad friend. It's just a lousy teacher. The only thing that can teach us that can get through to us and profoundly change us is suffering, failure, loss, and wounds. How fun is that? (laughs) What we want in life is to be kept from pain, but some of our greatest opportunities in life to grow, to grow in our knowledge of the faithfulness of God, to, to grow into our strength, to grow in faith, to grow in character and maturity and wisdom, which is what we all long for, is through those acute periods of of suffering and failure and vulnerability. It's exile. When we all go through periods of exile, we need to be prepared to make the most of them. So I'll offer four quick encouragements that are simple but not simplistic. The first is when is you find yourself in a period of exile, of estrangement, of in-between, where you can't control things. Don't try to rush the process. Let it happen. Some things are only proven over time. The beauty of spring is felt by those who have endured the length of winter. Don't rush the process. God is working on you while you are working on this. Number two... Let discomfort be your teacher. Ask those reflective why questions. In the middle of exile and pain, what more, God, can I learn about myself in the middle of this? Ooh, I don't like talking about that. Why? Why is that conversation a trigger for you? Why is interacting with that person a trigger for you? Why is this situation a trigger? What more can I learn about myself in this period of estrangement and exile? And God, what more can I learn about you in the middle of this? Let discomfort be your teacher. Adopt this posture. God, this feels like such a mess. It feels like failure. But hey, I'll I'll learn whatever you want to teach me. Let discomfort be your teacher. 
Three, assume that God is working for good even when things feel silent. If you're a Jew living in Babylon and you're in year three of exile, there's nothing that you can do to, to, to speed up to year 70. Uh, tr- but that doesn't mean that God's not working. Uh, year, uh, a couple of months ago, I shared a quote uh, from a Frenchman whose name I can't pronounce accurately. He said, give our Lord the benefit of believing that his hand is guiding you. Assume that he's working even when things feel silent. And then fourth, know that all exiles, the ultimate exile, is going to end in a homecoming. That the ultimate exile that we all experience of life in the garden, life away from the garden, and coming home to the garden to interact with our Creator in a place of purity and innocence, the ultimate sense of exile will end when Christ returns in final victory and we feast at His heavenly banquet. But in this space of life away from the garden and waiting for the reunion with the garden where heaven and earth are forever meet and kiss again, there's important work that God wants to do that he can only do in exile. There's a beautiful demonstration of this in nature. This is the blue alcon butterfly. Uh, the blue alcon butterfly reproduce on this particular kind of flower. And there they have their, their larvae that become a caterpillar. And for the early stages of its development, the, the blue alcon uh, caterpillar will live on the top of this flower and there develop in a place of safety. But that they can only grow to a certain, uh, a certain size uh, on the top of the flower. They're living there out of protection from predators and enemies like ants that live at the bottom. And at a certain point in their development, something has to happen in, in the development of the, the blue alcom butterfly. They do something that seems like suicide. That they'll suspend themselves from the top of the flower and with a single strand of silk, they'll slowly lower themselves down onto the ground floor and leave themselves in a place of vulnerability where they're susceptible to attack from ants. And they know it's going to happen. In time, the ants can smell the presence of the caterpillar who lies motionless on the ground just waiting to be taken. The ants will come, they'll pick up the caterpillar and carry it back to their lair. And there in the lair, the caterpillar emits these pheromones that trick the ants into believing that they're caring for their own young. And for almost two years, these caterpillars will live inside the nest of these thousands and thousands of ants that are plumping it up, that are making it stronger for almost two years in this place that looks like vulnerability, where they're surrounded by their enemies. For two years, they're being nourished. There's a unique work that's happening in the land of the enemy, in the place of estrangement and exile, that couldn't happen in the land of safety. And after almost two years of living in exile, these these caterpillars uh, will, will form a chrysalis. And for two weeks, they'll live in their chrysalis, their cocoon. And after two weeks, they will emerge in this beautiful, creature crawls out of the hole of exile and spreads wings and flies. He does something that looks like suicide, does something that looks like certain death, going into exile. But it's only by going into exile, going into the land of the enemy, that the creature has an opportunity to survive and to develop and to grow and to blossom and to spread its wings and to soar on the heights. 
And the, the lesson in nature illustrates so beautifully what the gospel has always taught us, that there is no resurrection without first going through death. Jesus said anyone who wants to save their life, go to that place of glory, is going to lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Paul says in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. I've already died. I'm a dead man walking. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The way forward for us is always through death first, the death that leads to life, just as Christ's death led to life, new life for him in a resurrected body. And this, again and again, from Genesis to Revelation, is the, is the way that God works. And for those of us who are going through exile, through periods of estrangement, through periods of pain, it might be that in the middle of that, God is working for your good, not causing your suffering or the destructive choices that other people made, but God who is endlessly resourceful, working for good to spend that for your own resurrection. And in the middle of your exile, will you trust Him? Will you open yourself to Him, submit yourself to the process, letting your enemies crawl all over you, uh, learning from them everything that God could possibly uh, want you to take away for your good. This is the lesson of the gospel, to embrace suffering, to embrace exile, to embrace death that we might find a greater resurrection. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it feels like I can imagine that it feels like for people who are going through a divorce or an unhappy marriage, uh, for people who are going through a difficult, a trying job transition, for people who have lost ones that they love, for the various and sundry ways in which we experience exile, it feels like surely there's no good in this. And I have to imagine that it felt like that for Israel and for Judah too. We're too big to fail. Surely God wouldn't let the temple be destroyed. Like, we're too important. He wouldn't do that. God, you see the big picture. Not only the big picture of our lives and our stories, but the big picture of all of history unfolds before you. And Jesus, we pray that you would give us a, a, an awareness, a deliberate faith to choose trust even when you feel silent to choose confidence in you even when we feel like we are being swarmed by our enemies. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you're with me. Help us to believe that both in the temple and in the land of exile that you are the faithful God who walks with us. Jesus, I pray for those of us who are suffering. I pray for the many people around the world who are suffering, that your spirit, that your justice would flow down like a river. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come, that you would establish your reign, that we would have that homecoming to the garden, that our faith would be sight. But even as we wait, increase our faith, increase our strength, increase our confidence in you, and help us to, to drain the marrow of every good thing you're trying to teach us, to drink it up to its dregs. And Lord Jesus, thank you that as we gather today in the middle of July, in the middle of America, 
You're here with us as we gather around the table. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you left the comfort of heaven to enter into the exile of humanity, entering into the shame and the, the betrayal and the ugliness and the sin of humankind and bore all of that on your body on the cross, the lowest of lows of your exile, and went even lower, descending to the dead, and there waiting dead until your Father raised you back to life. And now you're at the right hand of the Father, pulling for us who still live in exile, announcing the coming of your kingdom and the end of exile through what you've done on the cross and through your resurrection. Help us to trust this Jesus, to be confident in the presence of Jesus who lives among us. I pray all this in his name and for his glory.